Hood by J.M. Bullpit. Read by Jack Collard. Chapter 23 Life on the Edge Even though he had barely survived being crushed as their house had tumbled into the sea, making love to Isla dominated Robbie's thoughts the following morning. The cuts and scrapes to his ribs and fingers still ached, of course, and their breakfast was meagre, as almost all of their provisions had been lost to the collapsed house but the pain of his wounds and his growling stomach only reminded Robbie that this was not some cruel alternative reality or dream narrative. Am I with, truly with, the woman I? Dare he use such a term? Surely that was unleashing something unsafe, something uncontrolled, something he could never unsay or unfeel. It was Isla's physical imperfections that endeared her the most to Robbie. The zigzagging ridge of spots near her hairline, the -the join-the-dots constellation of moles that lightly patterned her forearm, the snagged, filthy fingernails. All these flaws might have marked Isla out as some way short of truly fit, by someone like a dismissive Barney Toon. To Robbie, however... They were unique identifiers on the woman for which he had fallen. Isla, his girlfriend, was not some austere vision of beauty personified. He could relate to her, connect with her, and any blemishes were like the appealing scuffs that made a pair of jeans his favourite. If other boys could not see beyond the surface, then good. Isla would be more likely to stay with him than choose those other superficial idiots. Although sex was astonishing, Robbie had underestimated the potency of kissing. A kiss was never just kissing. Each kiss was its own act of communication and negotiation, translating and transmitting tenderness, lust, affection, adoration, a promise to be delivered later. 
a deceleration, a playful tease, a question mark, a full stop, something approaching... But no, Robbie would not allow himself to be drawn into the gravity of such an emotion. Not long after dawn, a little while after Isla and Robbie had dressed in the spare clothes that were not drenched and had devoured the last of the food, there was frantic knocking on the back door. Almost immediately, Eliza Marsh flustered in, anxiety draining from her face the moment she spotted them. Oh, thank the gods, thank the gods, she exclaimed, relief exhaled with every syllable. Even Bertie seemed pleased to see them wagging his tail and trotting around the floor, vacuuming up the crumbs left by their poultry breakfast. We saw what's left of the house you were in and naturally thought the worst. Thank the gods you did the sensible thing and moved out. I suggest you grab your things and shove off to my house for a day or two. A house falling into the sea is still an event around here and they'll have engineers and surveyors wanting to check on the structural integrity of the other buildings, including this one. Best you're not here when they come calling, or there'll be questions. Don't worry, your motorbike will be quite safe. Is this all your gear? We have more, but not anymore, Isla replied. Eliza Marsh showed she understood what had happened and how lucky they had been with raised eyebrows and a nod. Let's be off then. Grab whatever you can, and I'll cook you breakfast. Come along now, Bertie. The only thing Isla and Robbie desired was to have remained in their own company with their own pursuits, but they saw the wisdom in what Eliza Marsh was telling them. Even before reaching the artist's house, they witnessed the bustling activity of those villagers eager to see the new devastation wreaked on the dwindling coastline. They stayed in the small, nondescript house for the better part of two and a half days. Eliza Marsh gave them the guest bedroom, with the two single beds made up with sheets and, even though in private Isla and Robbie kissed and caressed each other, they did not make love for fear that somehow such an act would be trespassing on the kindness of this woman. In less than an hour, they both agreed that central heating was the most glorious creation ever invented, but there were other ways to generate warmth denied to them for the moment. Both Isla and Robbie were keen to move back into the Marsh family bungalow as soon as possible. Eliza, this might seem rude, seeing as you've done so much for us. And we are so grateful, Isla began sheepishly. But we lost most of our provisions to the storm. If we gave you the money, if it was all right with you, and we wouldn't be offended if you said no, but if we could give you the money and a list, would you mind? Doing a shop for you? Course not, dear. I was going to set off for my weekly plunder today anyway. Eliza scanned the list whilst Isla and Robbie winced in front of her. The artist merely raised an eyebrow when she came to the item. Ah, condoms, is it? I see we've moved right on past the kissing stage then. Well, that should put the cat amongst the boggers. A 63-year-old spinster buying contraceptives. My, but the gossip mongers will be in full song by the end of the day. Antonia Drabble is fair going to explode in joy and intrigue. You can shove the two beds in the spare room together if you'd rather. 
I sleep like a corpse, so I won't hear any of your shenanigans. Both Isla and Robbie shook their bowed heads, their blushes suggesting they were some way beyond mortified. The moment Isla's car had disappeared up the road, they did kiss and more. However, the more became a considerable less when, independently of each other, they could sense the pair of eyes watching them. Bertie's quizzical stare was just too disconcerting. Even when they thought they had shaken off the Jack Russell and were certain the animal was dozing in his basket, the moment Isla and Robbie made contact with each other would be the moment before they detected the little dog's relentless, watchful, silent presence in the corner of their eyes. Somehow they would feel self-conscious and shameful until they were half convinced that Bertie was a witch's familiar and Eliza's eyes by proxy. I can't do this here. I can't do anything that feels like overstepping a friend's hospitality any more than we have, Robbie, explained Isla. And Eliza has been a friend to us. And I can't do anything with that damned dog watching us, Robbie replied. What does he want from us? Is he taking notes? To avoid further temptation as much as possible, Isla and Robbie chose separate rooms in the house. There they tried to study the various pictures propped up around the walls and utterly failed to prevent themselves dwelling on what else they could be doing with this time alone. Only exhaustion from the events of the previous night offered any solution, and they slept for hours. When they woke, it was as they feared with Eliza's shopping. She had bought more for them than their budget had allowed, but would hear nothing about accepting any more payment. Not only had she purchased another camping stove and lantern, but she had also required a small gas-powered space heater for the bungalow, along with two full canisters of fuel. It's my family home, and I shall equip it as I see fit, Eliza replied defensively to Isla's you-really-shouldn't-have glare. Your condoms have condemned my reputation, you know. Isla's glare instantly shattered into something less sure of itself. When the chemist gave me an inquiring look, I was proud of myself for this. I told him that I thought this new year was going to be my lucky year. He was quite nonplussed, you know. Eliza laughed. God, I wouldn't know how to even start sketching his expression. The following night, after long hugs with both Eliza and Bertie, Isla and Robbie returned to the bungalow on the doomed road. They waited long enough to fire up the space heater and, in its low glow, they rapidly removed each other's clothes to make love on blankets on the floor, as if they had been exiled from each other for a decade. And for several weeks, their lives fell into an idyllic routine. Thanks to Isla, they had enough food and supplies to keep them sustained for a month and a half. Every other day, they would walk down to her house for a shower and to wash clothes, although invariably the artist would make them something hot to eat and they would luxuriate by the radiators and dream of possessing their own. Life back in the bungalow was considerably more comfortable, however, and as long as they positioned themselves near the space heater, the cold was kept at bay. In return for Isla's generosity and hospitality, every afternoon, as the last of the thin winter light faded in the west, 
the artist would trudge in from the beach for a cup of tea. Bertie lapped up a milky brew from a saucer and a natter. At these times, she would show them her work in progress. There was always this one composition Eliza Marsh was working and reworking, depicting Isla and Robbie facing the elements. Eliza always demanded their judgment upon it, and the pair of them would offer honest comments about the image and secretly regret that they did not have enough money to buy the painting in gratitude for what this woman had done for them. Alone for the rest of the day, they would read or walk or cook or Isla would tinker on Mildred or they would doze or pretty much the opposite of doze. And it was during this time that Robbie learned that Isla, dressed only in his shirt and her knickers, was the most erotic sight he could ever imagine experiencing. In fact, Robbie wondered if all women wielded underwear in the same way Isla quickly learned to do, sometimes teasing, sometimes promising, sometimes inviting, sometimes teasing, sometimes promising, sometimes inviting, sometimes denying. Robbie was becoming fluent in a tongue he never knew existed. And, poor as he was, Robbie counted himself the luckiest man alive. The only way he could become closer to Isla, he pondered, was if he grafted himself onto her. It's not the most romantic place, is it? Robbie complained one day as he stared up at the cobwebs and cracked plaster. Oh, I don't know, Isla replied, tracing the muscles of his chest and arm with a lazy finger. Living out our relationship in a doomed place on the edge of the world? Is there anything more romantic? With most of January and a good helping of February lived in cold contentment, they understood that the money had come to an end and that they would have to cash in the remaining gold bar. It was the first time in weeks they had set out for the nearest town. By imperceptible small increments, the days were becoming longer and, therefore, they were barely out of the village in the motorbike and sidecar when dawn rose, causing the clouds to glint as if they were about to rain rubies and amethysts. On reaching town... Robbie kissed Isla's lips and then nuzzled her head, loving the must-up look it gave her style after wearing the crash helmet, and then they parted. He was tasked with acquiring a new rucksack, their own having been lost to the storm, and then he wandered into a second-hand bookshop for more reading material. Meanwhile, Isla visited an internet cafe to search for the best place to exchange gold locally. When they met up an hour later... Isla had news. Dress since Dave emailed me. Asked what happened and where I went. Says he has 300 pounds of wages waiting for me, and he's got my bag of tools too. He says I can collect the money and tools whenever I want, and that the job's still mine. Even considering offering me a raise just in case some other garage has poached me. Thoughts? Robbie adored the way she was looking at him so intently. They were a partnership, and beyond desiring him, she wanted his advice. We can't trust him, Isla. It seemed innocent enough. Sounded like the sort of thing Dave might say. And I do want my tools back. They're about the only thing the old man did give me. Slightly deeper than most women's, 
Robbie found Isla's voice enthralling and had begun to attribute qualities like experience and enticements to it, even when he knew that none probably existed. However, he would resist being swayed by her stare and her voice over this point. We can't trust him. Rob, is there a chance you're blowing this out of proportion? She asked and then held up a hand as a gesture for him to let her finish. I'm not saying us disappearing from London wasn't the right call when it happened last year. But months have passed. Hell, it was last year, Rob. This John Parry mixes with proper criminals, proper psychos, proper scary people. Isn't there a chance that Parry is less bothered by a bungled mugging and is less concerned with going after a foolish young chancer than you are? The guy probably has bigger fish to fry. Robbie was silent. Isla had just spoken aloud the same nagging doubts that had beset him almost as soon as they had left London. If we cash in that gold bar, we might just make it through winter back at the bungalow, maybe longer. But three hundred quid, Rob. Three hundred and the gold puts us at the other end of spring. And who knows what might happen then. Rob chewed his bottom lip. How many young female mechanics do you think there are in London? He asked. I don't know. There might be hundreds. Rob was not convinced. Did you find a place to cash in the gold? Not around here, not without being asked some serious questions. There was a news article about some bloke who had his own dodgy currency exchange scam who's just finished serving his time, but his nickname's Iffy John. I'm not tempted, Isla replied. However, one trip to London. You cash in the gold, I collect my wages and tools. We're out of there and back here and... Isla self-consciously lowered her head and peered up at him with a mere suggestion of a smile. Up to no kid? He managed not to show it, but Isla's gesture was as if she had just over-revved his heart, leaving Robbie with all kinds of unchanneled energy, turbulence and frustrations. They ummed and ahed about the decision for the rest of the day, but eventually Robbie agreed. Maybe he was being paranoid. London was immense, and John Parry could not have influence over all of it. It was possible that John Parry saw him as nothing more than a young thug on the make, who bit off more than he could chew. The more Robbie tried to see it from Parry's point of view, the more unlikely it seemed that this gangster would even go to the effort of still seeking him. There was no profit in it and Robbie had had the good grace to flee for his life. Besides, Robbie's hair was longer and he would only be in London for little more than an hour. Robbie doubted if MI5 could marshal the forces to locate and capture him in a single hour, let alone John Parry. The one compromise that Robbie did insist upon, and to which Isla reluctantly agreed, was that they did not take the motorbike. Mildred was too obviously linked to them, Instead, they would ask Eliza to drop them at the nearest train station and, hopefully, pick them up on their return, but they were not concerned about the return in any way. Robbie still had his doubts about the whole enterprise, but was determined to enjoy the day with Isla, especially as she was so upbeat and confident about the extra money they would have coming in. 
they bought fish and chips in town and talked about making Isla an offer on the painting she had produced of them, although they knew it would be an insultingly small sum. Optimistic, fed and smitten, they drove straight through the village in daylight finding the lane empty. They almost forgot about Eliza's late afternoon tea and biscuits visit, but were quickly dressed before anyone but Bertie had walked in on them. Eliza agreed to drop them at the train station the next day and, though they both knew that an early night and rest was the sensible option, neither Robbie nor Isla got much sleep that night, and this time they could not blame the weather. They left most of their gear in the bungalow, secure in the knowledge that they would be back that evening. They took a moment to stand in the lane to take in the blue, blank sky and feel the chill breeze on their faces. For some reason, it felt like hope, and after this day, a chance that this near-perfect state of existence was within their grasp for a few months longer. In synchrony, they exchanged a smile and grabbed each other's hands. A little while later, they were hugging Eliza goodbye as if she was a favourite relative before boarding the train for London. Long before they reached the outskirts of the city, Robbie insisted that Isla wore the coat in case of any trouble, and she put up no resistance to the idea. Reaching Liverpool Street Station, they wasted no time in catching a tube train and kissed goodbye outside an internet cafe where they would meet in three quarters of an hour. It was agreed that Robbie would go nowhere near dress since Dave's, but had his own mission to cash in the last gold bar. It did not take Robbie long to locate the ever-grubby apology of an A-board on the pavement advertising the words currency exchange, gold and silver, bought and sold. Down the long, even grubbier corridor, he strode towards the familiar small glass partition behind which sat the same wrinkled woman with the bored, cynical eyes. Wondered when we might be seeing you again, she seemed to sneer rather than smile at him. It's been a while. Been abroad, Robbie lied with a fleeting smile as he passed the final gold bar through the gap. All her small talk exhausted and guessing he was not someone for small talk, the wrinkled woman was back to business. Of course you won't mind me checking this one for authenticity, she asked, reaching for the nitric acid. Robbie did not mind nor did he mind abandoning the grubby corridor for the final time several hundred pounds richer. Having little more to do now than lay low, Robbie returned early to the agreed meeting point with Isla at the internet cafe. He paid the couple of pounds for half an hour's web access and decided to catch up by scanning the news from the last few months. Quite a lot of financial waffle he did not understand, trade deals, the fall from grace of some public figure, the success of some musician's latest film, the distant return of the deep space interstellar voyage of the Pelagic and her crew led by Commander Hertz, England performing badly in some sporting tournament, tensions between two Asian countries, a sex scandal, the appalling cost of war in a Central African country, the advance of green energy technology, the effects of a drug called Salome. It meant nothing to Robbie initially, but the Salome reference kept reoccurring until he finally stumbled upon the headline, Drug Supply Takes a Dive with the Capture of Salome Sub. 
The submarine reference combined with the mention of drugs was enough for Robbie to recall the events on the mountain plateau in front of the decaying basilica of Elena de Thinna. United States drug enforcement agencies are claiming a victory against the war on the new narcotic called Salome last night with the interception of a single-man submarine off the Baja Peninsula, California. Traces of the drug were found within compartments on board the vessel, although it is now apparent that the submarine had already deposited its cargo somewhere along the western seaboard and was heading out of United States waters. The hapless pilot of the submarine, who is believed to be of South American descent, had surfaced to get his bearings. Unfortunately for him, as the vessel broke the surface, it unintentionally rammed the hull of a Coast Guard ship, which... Surely there could be little doubt that the submarine was the same vessel Robbie had witnessed being left in the care of Nestor Soto, high up in those distant mountains. This information changed nothing regarding his feelings towards his grandmother and Ivan Noon, of course. All it proved was that the Mona Lisas were still embarking on their drug deal. Yet this article was already several months old, and it was linked to a whole series of articles about the drug. Isla had still not arrived, and the article had sparked enough of an interest in Robbie for him to read the other links connected to Salome. It seemed that the majority of the Salome articles appeared some time after the submarine capture, but, interestingly, they were migrating from buried links within the news organization's wealth of news stories to further up towards the front pages. Finally, Robbie came across an electronic broadsheet article under the title Salome, Profile of an Exceptional Drug by Dr. Leighton Stutz. No one yet knows who created the drug named Salome, whether someone deliberately planted it into the drug-dealing networks of North America and Europe, or whether its side effects are an unintended byproduct by the chemists who mixed it. One thing is certain, however. Its effects are startling and unprecedented, causing a vicious war to break out amongst the criminal drug-dealing networks of the world as the substance takes hold of the drug consumers in the West and now Asia. Masquerading as a hit of crack cocaine, even the smallest quantities of the drug are effectively placing users into cold turkey. It must be made clear that the drug cannot cure the psychological addiction but it does effectively act as a system purgative, forcing drug users to reject any further doses of crack for a period of up to three weeks. Robbie had to stop reading. His mind was so overloaded with conflicting thoughts and evidence it felt like it was on the brink of shutdown. His pulse seemed to accelerate and amplify, even his fingers on the keyboard began to tremble. Suddenly... The article made sense of Grandma Gwen's comments that he would see the true effects of the drug deal. The Salome drug was not meant to exploit the addiction of drug users. It had been designed to try to cure them of it. A surge of nausea began to overwhelm Robbie. He needed a friendly voice, but how did he make contact? Frantically rummaging in his pockets, Robbie located the compact black case his grandma Gwen had given him on their last meeting. He had never had the heart to discard it, and grabbed the communication device resting on the red velvet within. 
He clipped the leather cord around his neck and the small black bead rested on the depression at the base of his throat. It was the sort of accessory a Californian surfer might wear. In his haste, Robbie almost lost the tiny speaker resembling a skin mole that needed to be attached to the inner shell of the ear. Taking a moment to calm his breathing, Robbie squeezed the bead on the necklace. A low metallic chime sounded from nowhere. There was no answer. Robbie counted 50 of his own heartbeats before pressing the bead again, causing the metallic note to sound once more. Rob? Ivanoon's voice was so clear that for a moment, Robbie looked behind him, believing his grandmother's bodyguard had entered the cafe and spoken directly in his ear. Rob? Ivo asked again. Everything all right, Rob? Can you hear me? Ivo, it's so good to hear you. I've just read about the Salome drug and I understand now because I didn't see it before. I mean, how could I? And you still killed that man, you can't deny that. But I see that you were all helping. The Mona Lisas and their people were all trying to help. At least, I think you were... Rob. 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 Slow down, Ivor instructed. You're rambling and making no sense. Are you all right? Where are you? I'm contacting you and Grandma to say I'm sorry, Robbie explained. It's great to hear from you, Rob, but you never had to apologise. Here's your grandmother. Where are you, sweetie? Again, Grandma Gwen's voice cut in so clearly that it did not feel like a transmission at all, but his grandmother stood beside him. Are you in trouble? No, I'm fine, Grandma, Robbie replied. I've just explained to Ivor that I've only found out about this Salome drug thing just now and I wanted to say sorry. It's so wonderful to hear your voice again, sweetie. Robbie was amazed at how easily he had become accustomed to speaking to a crystal-clear disembodied voice being transmitted without any noticeable hardware or loss of mind. We've been so worried about you, especially after your exploits in London. You were wise to flee the city after what you did to John Perry. You need to stay away from London now, Rob, because even after all these weeks, John Parry has his people looking everywhere for you. Consider London a no-go. Where are you? Something frozen and solid seemed to be swelling in the location of Robbie's chest. London? His voice cracked. You must leave now, Robbie. His grandmother did not try to hide the urgency in her voice. She uttered something muffled to Ivor. We'll get there as quickly as we can, but you have to leave now. Any train or coach to anywhere will meet you. Whatever you do, it is imperative that you do not go back to Dress Sense Dave's garages and scrapyard. Robbie felt as if he would vomit. The frozen sensation was racing up his spinal column. He glanced at the clock on the computer. Isla was already ten minutes late. Robbie, do you hear me? Stay away from London. And tell the girl you're with not to go near Dress Sense Dave's either. It's a set-up. A trap. 